Welcome. All right, let's get started. Good to see you, Herb. Okay. So good afternoon. Welcome to the December edition of our monthly Cyber Risk Wednesday. Again, we hit a Wednesday, which is not always the case. Uh, my name is Joshua Corman. I'm the director for the Cyber Statecraft Initiative here at the Atlantic Council in the Brent Scowcroft Center for International Security. Uh, welcome as well to you watching online as we stream this. I encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ACCyber and the Twitter handles of ACScowcroft and CSM Passcode. Uh, as always, I'd like to also thank our media partner, uh, the Christian Science Monitor's Passcode for joining us today. Uh, this afternoon's conversation gathers a group of commissioners to discuss the findings of the Presidential uh, Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. Uh, as well as the broader implications of the Commission's recent report to the future of U.S. cyber policy. Uh, the Commission was established by President Obama earlier in the year. It just uh, completed its report two weeks ago on December 1st, uh, providing a detailed short-term and long-term recommendations to strengthen cybersecurity in both the public and private sectors, uh, while also protecting privacy, fostering innovation, and ensuring economic national security. On the panel today, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Steve Chabinski and Kirsten Todd. Unfortunately, Heather Morin fell ill and will not be joining us, but she's here in spirit and we will carry some of her, her passionate points uh, in the conversation. Uh, Steven is partner and global chair of data privacy and cybersecurity at the law firm White and & Case and one of the commissioners in the report we will be discussing today. Uh, Kirsten served as the executive director of the Presidential Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. Uh, thank you uh, for taking the time to join us. I look forward to your questions, insights, and discussion. But before we kick off our vibrant panel discussion, I am honored to welcome Dr. Herb Lin, who is joining us via Skype. Wave. Okay. Um, for some opening remarks, Herb is a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, both at Stanford University. Uh, he was also a commissioner on this influential report that we are about to discuss. And with that, Herb, I hand the floor to you. Okay, great. Um, how's the sound coming out there? Okay. Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Thank. Thank you. Um, the first thing I I, I want to say is is a uh, is a process point that's been made. Two process points. Uh, one uh, was that the commission uh, commission's work was entirely bipartisan or nonpartisan actually. Um, the Republican. Uh, on the commission is known to be Sam uh, 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 Sam Palisamo. The Democrat is known to be the chair, uh, Tom Donilon. But if you listen to the comments of everybody around the table, you couldn't tell R or D just by listening to their comments. So it was really a remarkable uh, effort in that regard. Uh, totally nonpartisan, uh, and the report wasn't crafted uh, in, in any way that presumed the winner uh, of the uh, of the election. The, the the second point, process point. It is that this report, this process was great, thanks to Kirsten and her uh, and her her staff on, on uh, here. Um, I, I was totally scared about the the prospect of coming up with a good report uh, after the the first meeting when I first realized what the charge was, and and, and uh, Kirsten and and staff hit it out of the park. So uh, I, I'm very proud and pleased to have been a been a part of this. Uh, so so thank you uh, to you know to Kirsten and of course thank you to all of the other all, all the commissioners to, to who made this uh, you know one of the most interesting projects I've been uh, been associated with. Um, what I wanted to do was to uh, uh, cast uh, some uh, 
characterize uh, the in certain ways that I think are explicitly stated in, in court. Um, uh, no. Great. Um, thank you. Uh, there. Can you hear me now? Not anymore. Hi, let's try again. Can you hear us, Herb? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. The video is loading. Okay, up good. Right, okay. Well, so uh, there, there's an old saying. Uh, there are three roads to ruin. Sex is the most fun. Alcohol is the fastest. Technology is the most certain. And, and I think we just proved that. Um, what I wanted to, to do was to uh, go over some points that I think are implied but not explicitly stated in the report. Uh, and and um, uh, so th with, with that, I want to, you know, the first point is, is that the market has failed to provide the U.S. with the cyber security posture that it needs. Um, if this were not true, of course, the commission wouldn't have been necessary in the first place. And I see the market failure being reflected in two ways. One is easier to fix, the other harder. The easier way to fix, the, the easier aspect of it to fix is that individual entities uh, don't do all that they should uh, to provide for their own cybersecurity needs. They don't really realize the scope of the threats they, they face. They don't know how to respond and, you know, and, 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 and so on. So we, the report th then emphasizes ways of, of having the, uh, uh, the, the, the individual entities uh, get better at it, uh, get better at cybersecurity, to plan for their needs and so on. Um, the second aspect of uh, market failure is harder to deal with. It's that even if these en individual entities did do everything that they should be doing to provide for their own cybersecurity, or really more precisely what they should be, uh, what they could be reasonably expected to do, the resulting cybersecurity posture of the, the nation would be better than it is today, but that still would be inadequate uh, from a national perspective because of all the interdependencies uh, between these entities. Sort of the, the, the concept of critical infrastructure rests on this uh, idea. Um, and so we point out that the U.S. government has ultimate responsibility for defending the U.S. Uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, and and uh, acknowledging that there are some threats, that there are some cyber threats uh, that the private sector working alone can't be expected to address. And this, of course, is much harder to address than, than the first because it's not in any individual entity's self-interest to do what it needs, what the nation needs it to do. Uh, the second point that I think is implied uh, in, the, in the report is that tort liability for security lapses and, and, and uh, inadequacies in, in information technology is inevitable. It's coming. 
Uh, we've argued for a long time about whether liability is or is not a good way to force IT products to uh, vendors to, to attend to security. Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, but I think that the, I think the committee, uh, the commission believes in the end uh, that it is inevitable uh, that uh, liability will come with the IoT. And the reason for that is that the, the IoT uh, integrates uh, physical devices uh, uh, with computational capability, uh, and we already have a robust regime for uh, physical devices, a regime, ro robust liability regime for physical devices um, uh, that, uh, that, that cause harm to, for, uh, to, to their users. Um, and, 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 you know, so for example, if you have a toaster that burns down your house, uh, you know, the, 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 the manufacturer is liable for damages unless it can show it behaved responsibly. Uh, and now if we put IoT connectivity to the toaster uh, and somebody hacks into the toaster and burns your house down and it penetrates it, there's no way they're going to be ex able to escape liability, the vendor, uh, by saying, no, 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 the, the, you know, the, the computational parts, uh, you know, just read the EULA, the, the end user uh, licensing agreement. You know, we, we disclaim liability there. there that, some judge is going to say that's not valid and, and liability will come that way. Uh, and we, you know, we point out that the, we, we, we say this, that we acknowledge that liability is coming sort of indirectly by saying that, you know, we, we consider the value of liability relief under certain circumstances, which of course is a way of saying that liability is coming. Uh, and we want it to, to slow down in certain places, you know, if people do certain good things. Uh, the second, you know, a third point is, is, is that uh, regulation is not to be avoided under all circumstances. We could have said, the report could have said, regulation is never an inappropriate, never an appropriate way for the nation to obtain better cybersecurity. Um, and we didn't say that, okay? We said the role, that incentives are important uh, to align behavior with better cybersecurity op options, but we also said that regulation should be considered when the risks to private safety and security are material and the market cannot adequately mitigate these risks. Um, and so, you know, what we said was that uh, further that the use of the broader use of the NIST framework would reduce the need for future regulation. That's clearly a statement that regulation might become necessary if the goals uh, of better cybersecurity uh, with the NIST framework aren't achieved. Uh, next point is that we think that the report pays a lot of attention to the non-technical aspects of cybersecurity. Uh, that that non-technical aspects of cybersecurity are as important as the technology, maybe more so. Incentives for better cybersecurity, which is what the report is focused on a, a lot, uh, is a matter of uh, you know, economic psychology, organization, policy, and so on. They're not a technical matter. Um, and, and, you know, we know that the most innovative technologies are, are for security are useless if people don't develop it. Uh, sorry, if people, if developers uh, don't use it uh, or if users bypass uh, or ban its use because using it makes people uh, ban its use because it makes their experience too clumsy. So, you know, today, you think about it, the, uh, the advice that we give to people to, uh, to achieve better cybersecurity is don't open this email, don't click on this link, don't, download, don't, don't download that attachment. I mean, it's essentially an argument that says, don't use IT for the reasons you want to use IT. Now, that, that doesn't work. And, and, and so for that reason, we emphasize the need for practically usable security. 
Uh, and the, 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 the last point uh, on, on, on this from, from my perspective is that really is there no silver bullet for fixing the, the, the for improving the nation's cybersecurity posture. Um, our recommendations cover a broad waterfront. People have commented on the fact that there are a large number of recommendations uh, and, and many action items and lots of people want to say, want me to say and other people say, what's the most important thing in the report? I mean, aside from underscoring the importance of national attention to the problem, it's really hard to point out one singularly important thing. Okay? What I learned from the, the fact that the press stories about this are all over the map regarding what aspect of the report they focus on is that improving cybersecurity is an effort that has to be fought on many fronts simultaneously. And in fact, I could speculate that, uh, that that fact alone, the fact that it has to be fought on many fronts simultaneously, uh, accounts for much of the difficulty in generating strong public support uh, for uh, any particular measure to enhance cybersecurity. Uh, and, and so that's the, uh, uh, th those are some of the, from my perspective, those are some of the uh, unstated views, uh, 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 unstated points, uh, unstated implicit points in the, in the report that I think underlie it. Uh, and with the, that, I'm told that I can take uh, five or ten minutes, to, you know, five minutes or so to answer any pressing comments here. Anybody, can you hear me? Or have I been talking into the air? Hello? Hello? Hello, um, fellow Californian Sharon Vovat, voice of a moderate. I'm just curious what your reaction is compared to this report with the allegations from the CIA with Russia and the hack. Do you think that could have been prevented? Or do you think that it's part of the problem of cyber being worse than sex and alcohol? Thank you. <laughs> um, you're, you're asking me to comment on the, uh, on, on the Russian hacks. From a technical standpoint, the Russian hacks weren't uh, particularly sophisticated. Um, what we don't know, it's what they did with the information that, that was hacked. Uh, and they, you know, they were able to spread it out in, in, in a way that uh, was um, uh, damaging to, uh, you know, to various candidates uh, in, in, in this election. Uh, so, uh, technically, uh, it, it shows that to be a little bit, to be better uh, at cybersecurity, sometimes you don't have to do very much, and in fact, the DNC hadn't done all that much. I suspect the same is true of the, of the RNC as well. Uh, so, the, I, I, but, you know, at the same time, the, the idea that you will keep uh, the bad guys out of your system uh, forever, uh, in the face of a, a very concerted attack, I think that's really hard to hard, hard to do. Um, I think we need to, as a nation, we need to get better at understanding how to manage uh, information that does get leaked. Just because it's leaked, or it was found on email and it was hacked, doesn't mean it's useful. It's useful knowledge or helpful to the debate. Hello, uh, my name is Ethan Berger, and I'm on a Fulbright teaching at Vilnius University about cybersecurity. And my question is, do you have confidence that the relationship between the government and the insurance industry is sound? Because I would think with respect to the, all the exclusions for state actors and organized crime groups, as well as if there were significant uh, losses by some industries, 
whether the uh, private sector will be looking to the government and the taxpayer ultimately to uh, get them out of the fire. I note about a year and a half ago, some very senior person at Lloyd's said that Lloyd should pull out of the cyber insurance industry entirely, and then he sort of moderated his comment in the FT that they simply should not be writing policies for under $100 million. Well, so, uh, right, I, I think you're asking me, is, is, you know, what, what do I think about uh, the government's role in, uh, in, in cyber insurance, and, and is that role well-defined and, and uh, clear and, and appropriate on, in all regards? I think the answer to that is clearly no. Uh, it is a nascent market. We don't know a lot about how these insurance markets uh, will function. Uh, we have theories about it. We have analogies from the, from the past, but how and to what extent those analogies from the past, you know, the fire insurance and so on, uh, apply to cyber is not yet clear. There is interesting work out there um, at least, you know, by one of my graduate students uh, and, and others about how to actually quantify the uh, the risk uh, that, uh, that would be insured parties uh, face, uh, and therefore how you set premiums and and, and so on. Um, but there, and, and who, and the questions of, of who acts as the the ultimate guarantor of, of, of catastrophic coupled losses and, and and so on. I think that's uh, that's that's an open question. Uh, but we we don't know a lot right now, and you know, lots more can be done. I think we're just starting to see the beginnings of an insurance market. It's not robust in any way right now at all. So, Herb, you're, you're welcome to join us for as long as you can listening in. Uh, thank you for your time. Can thank we give uh, Herb a uh, round of applause, please? Thank you. Thank you. At this stage, I'd like to invite the other panelists to, to come up on stage. Uh, yes, you do. And uh, I think we're going to touch more on your topic a little bit later. So feel free to ask a follow-up during the next round of Q&A. All right, so the, I think the first thing we should probably do is a little bit of opening remarks. We wanted to, to compliment what Herb had said, uh, and I will start uh, with you. I brought props. You brought props. These are That's right. Christmas gifts. We've got a few boxes of, uh, up in Gaithersburg, uh, if you'd like some. So I guess, you know, Josh had asked me to talk about a couple of things, both the approach to the commission as well as some of the key themes. And um, I'll repeat a lot of what Herb said um, but to, from the uh, perspective of um, mine, which is a staff role. Uh, there were 12 commissioners. This was a nonpartisan commission. It was a nonpartisan commission from day one. Uh, there were four individuals, four commissioners chosen by House and Senate leadership, as well as individuals chosen through the administration. And that was an important point because the call from the president to this commission from day one was, this is not a victory lap for the Obama administration. I don't need to be told all the great things I've done. If you want to tell me that we've done great things, that's terrific. But this is much more about what are we doing in the future? How do we grow and secure the digital economy today and years into the future? And so this was very much about taking a stock of where we are, where the challenges are, but looking forward. As we were, Josh and I were talking uh, at the outset or uh, before, and as he was looking through the imperatives, he said, really, the, your first one is about the here and now, but everything pretty much is looking forward. And that, that's true. This is about what are we doing and, and how do we improve upon it. And so as we took these 
the 12 ideas and uh, Steve and Herb uh, and this group was really an extraordinary uh, group of individuals because each of them were invested from day one. And I think that that's really important and I think it surprised some people when we would say that. But when you look at the words in this report, these are the words of the commissioners. Uh, this is very much, it was an active group of individuals who all had ideas and thoughts. Individuals who knew what they knew well, as well as really open when there was a topic that they weren't as familiar with to pull in and perspectives. And I think that's why uh, the breadth of this, as Herb was saying, is, is pretty significant. I'll just walk through uh, kind of the four key themes uh, as we were writing and looking at this and, and supporting it. The first is this idea of convergence. In this world where the physical world and the cyber world are converging, we now have to be really serious about the Internet of Things, about IoT. We no longer can kind of sit on the sidelines and talk about this great uh, great new in, uh, innovation that has a horrible acronym that means very <laughs> little, but this idea that IoT is, is something that's fun and flashy, this is actually very much a part of our infrastructure. And so the commission laid out ideas for standards for the Internet of Things and looking at how do we create this baseline security. And I think what was fascinating about the course of this commission, uh, and Steve can talk more to this, is there was a period of time when we were having discussions when there was the discussion around we really need to think about the security of devices that are life affecting, pacemakers, driverless cars, things like that. Then you saw the Mirai attack and you saw this exploitation of pedestrian devices, baby monitors and such, and that really hit home this interconnectedness. For the experts, everybody knew that that was there, but to be so exposed in such a significant way and made this point even clearer that this convergence issue is, is serious and that security standards across the board and for a baseline need to happen. The second is looking at the government. We talked pretty specifically, uh, the commission was tremendously thoughtful about clarifying the roles and responsibilities of government and ensuring that the private sector and the government are working together, not just after an event. Government does really well with incident response, but what this commission focused on and these individuals were adamant about was how do you ensure that the roles of government and the roles of the private sector are effective before and during as well as after an event. And then third, we have a lot of discussions around workforce, um, and we can get into that, but I would just highlight the two key issues that came up a lot, and we heard this in our first meeting, which is it's not so much that there isn't a, a lack of individuals, it's that the individuals in this workforce are not skilled appropriately. And so we talk about boot camps, and there are a lot of uh, uh, different proposals in here, and, and the consumer, which we'll get into a little bit more, how to educate the consumer, and I'm, I'm not even gonna broach this, because this is Steve's, the, the uh, security and moving it away from the end user. But the final point I'll make is just that the, re the research and development priority truly being that we have to be building security into the design and the development of products, that we can't create, make security, privacy, and trust auxiliary issues, that these are critical to the development of not just devices, but it's becoming the development of our infrastructure. Great, thank you. Steve? Uh, one, one thing that uh, Herb had mentioned, and f first let me just thank you and, and the Atlantic Council and the Christian Science Monitor for sponsoring and, and, and this event and moving this discussion forward because it really is a discussion and a long-term dialogue. And to echo Herb's point, um, to Kirsten and the staff, a tremendous job in wrangling um, a, a lot of different views uh, and uh, really getting this report out, uh, which I would think any of the commissioners face with this task as a part-time 
uh, role to pull together uh, what we hope would be meaningful and to contribute to the dialogue was certainly not a foregone conclusion that we would get that out, and, and much to your credit, we did. Um, I think one thing as well that Herb said is that um, if you ask any of the commissioners, just like if you were to ask any of the reporters to try to report on this and to prioritize it, it'll be all over the map. And that's going to be true if, if we had all 12 commissioners here. Each one would emphasize different areas, and not necessarily the ones that they came to the table with. Um, mm -hmm. But the reason I bring this up is your view of this report after this discussion will in no way actually reflect the entirety <laughs> of the report. And um, as hard as it is, this is a dense report, um, you're not going to want to hear me say, don't allow someone to summarize it for you. Please read it. Um, I will tell you in advance. I will be picking and choosing from the report in a way that would not be the same manner that someone else would prioritize. So that's my, my going into it. Um, I have biases of what I'm going to be discussing. Um, so read the report, okay? <laughs> How do you like that for a disclaimer from an attorney? Um, but I do want to say um, a few things uh, that I would hope to prioritize. And that is that what we're doing right now isn't sustainable, and it hasn't been for the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and quite frankly, it's been getting worse. We've grown more reliant, we've adopted more technologies that are not secure, and the threat gets bigger, more capable, and in response, um, we have decided that everyone needs to be responsible for cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. It's absurd, right? I mean, just think about it. Billions of people, millions of companies, thousands of agencies, internationally, in environments where we're taking different technologies, making them interoperable in ways that we can't even determine what the next use is going to be and telling people that everyone has a role in security and that the weakest link can actually click on something and affect a global network. That can't work. Um, and although I have the greatest respect for frameworks, including the NIST framework, ultimately, as elegant as they are, and I'm a big supporter of the NIST framework, um, it's elegant, but it's expressing a very complex framework that can in no way be expected to be implemented by any but the most capable, highly resourced organizations, and then they still will not be able to get the level of security that our country needs. So where do you go from there? Right? Where, where do you go from the fact that the complexity of cybersecurity is so great that it is not possible to imagine that we're going to be able to have this type of dialogue five years from now and be in the secure situation that we, to some extent, find ourselves in now when we hear about the life the life issues that get worse. So part of, um, part of the focus that I would like to talk about on the report is what the long-term game is as opposed to some of the more tactical aspects. And when I say tactical short-term, I talk about workforce. That's a tactical short-term objective. I talk about implementing the NIST framework as a short-term tactical objective. Information sharing as a short-term tactical objective. Why? Because if we get this right, you won't need to do any of those. 
Why should everybody have to learn about the NIST framework? Why should we take our greatest minds and train them for security instead of for innovation to really be something that is the next cure for whatever ails us or innovative to make life better? Why sink STEM minds all into security? Why have information where every single person in every business should be pushing information around for some holy grail to remain secure? It's not effective. It's not efficient. So the long-term hope is to really make those types of activities, if you will, irrelevant. And to take this issue as far away from the end user as possible so that every customer, every consumer, every business, every agency does not have to become an expert in cybersecurity. It's just not practical. My optometrist is not going to be able to be the leading cybersecurity expert but neither is the critical infrastructure operator, no less the small and medium businesses or the consumers. So how do you get there? How do you make it that this problem that we've found ourselves in with security that is an existential threat can be moved away from the responsibility of every user? And there are a number of aspects in this report that can make that happen. More than I could even discuss here again, um, relying on the fact that You'll just need to read the report, and I apologize for that. There's no Cliff's Notes on, on this one. But we did identify a few that I would want to run through just briefly now. Um, one is we have to view this problem at an infrastructure level. Um, what we discuss in here, not just as telecommunications, but as an internet ecosystem. That includes providers and domain registrars and registries, protocols, um, and the like. But there's a lot really that can be taken care of at a higher level, a lot of harmful traffic that can be eliminated before it ever gets down to the businesses, to the critical infrastructure even. I mean, before we have to worry about the electric power grid um, going down, it's going through the backbone. Um, and if you think about this in other terms, like reservoirs, and think about how horribly wrong things went in Flint, Michigan, the response to um, having uh, basically water that's not potable is not that every single citizen should have a water filtration system. Right? Those are responses that you have to get it right at the reservoir level, at the water treatment level. Um, and we can do that, and we can do a lot better than that. And a lot of folks are doing that now, but it's not aligned, it's not consistent, and it's not resourced. Uh, and the financial incentives, as Herb said, don't exist. The market is not getting us there. But I strongly feel it should not be a matter of regulation. I think this is a defense priority of the United States. If you think about the fact that our defense budget is $600 billion, I would propose if we just took 10% of that, $60 billion to focus inward on our security and our defense. This is a national defense issue. And if we asked the higher level providers and vendors throughout the world to propose solutions against that $60 billion budget of how much we can impact security before it reaches end users, we'd get a heck of a lot of good ideas. We need to incentivize that. What's amazing to me is there's something called the Connect America Fund. There's a Connect America Act where we wanted universal service, right? We don't have a Protect America fund, but we have Connect America. Let's protect America. So that's one way. Let's figure out how we could raise the solution set. Another is through threat deterrence. 
bad guys shouldn't be able to act in this space with impunity. We spend very little going after the bad guys, developing norms for behaviors, for international cooperation, to ensure that the MLET process is more effective, for example, to ensure that law enforcement is better resourced, that the State Department is better resourced. Actors shouldn't be able to act with impunity in this space. It's ridiculous to imagine that hackers can try to get into a system with thousands of attempts. And then if they're successful still, very little resources are going into figuring out who they are, getting that attribution, and making sure there's a penalty. Could you imagine in the physical world if bad guys went around just trying to break into doors thousands of times a day to businesses? We'd never let it happen. The FBI has hundreds of people, only hundreds of agents, who are working this, and they have the most of anyone. Meanwhile, we're spending billions of dollars on IT security thinking that this is a vulnerability issue. We've got to spend more time with threat deterrence. And then a third area um, certainly has to do with how we're designing and deploying our products and services. Um, we've heard a lot in the last few years about privacy by design, privacy by default. It's happening both in the United States, but as well, the leader really is within Europe of going for privacy um, by design, showing the roadmaps. Well, the report talks about security by design and by default, and with visibility and transparency for users to understand what the security is. And there's an emphasis on a nutrition label. Mm. Now, that in some ways can sound somewhat absurd depending on what the label says. Um, it has to be useful. I look at nutrition labels now, some of it's very useful. Some of it right now, if I look, and I'm not speaking for everyone else, I know a lot of good work went into trying to get this on the label, but I see something on my food label now that talks to me about genetically modified ingredients. What do I do with that? I'm told it's actually still safe. There's no indication that that food is not safe. So for me, when I think about adding a nutrition label in the cybersecurity context, we really have to figure out what that means. Does it mean that proper coding practices were or weren't used? Right? That there's a built-in hard-coded password that you can't change, and if the bad guy figures it out, they have full access to your system. We've got to get it right. But at the end of the day, that type of transparency can move the market, could allow consumers, not just consumers in terms of local individual consumers, but critical infrastructure, government procurement, to operate more properly, more effectively, and allow that market to move in that way. Uh, and then there's a fair amount in the report that talks about shared services. So what can you do right now before we get there? And we could really try to ensure that we reduce some complexity, um, especially within the government. Not every government agency is going to be able to be a cybersecurity expert. And so the government has to start acting with shared services and efficiencies and talent pools that don't require everyone to be an expert, that doesn't require this workforce development push and is allowing um, us to operate more effectively um, in the government as we're seeing in the private sector. And then, um, again, you could go on forever, but I will leave with one last point. Metrics. The report is very strong on the need to measure what we're doing. It's not good enough to measure. I shouldn't say it. I actually already misspoke. It's not measuring what we're doing. It's measuring the impact of what we're doing. We've for far too long just measured what we're doing, right? What we have in place. Have we actually done what we said we would do without seeing whether it's actually achieving results against the threat? We have to do better than that. Um, there's a comment in the report 
that says that the NIST, um, National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, would do well to look at the framework, especially as it relates to being implemented by small and medium businesses. And there's a comment in there that says, not only should it determine whether or not the NIST framework is cost effective, but to what extent, if any, it's actually effective. This is a moving problem. Um, and we have to constantly be vigilant to figure out if what we're deploying works. And we have to measure that. We have to look at best practices. We have to constantly review that. And we have to get that out to everyone. Uh, it's not good enough that you could say you've done something because it checks a box. If it doesn't work, it's a lot of sunk expense, a lot of sunk resources. So metrics play an important role. And we could go on and on right, about those points, but those are the ones that I wanted to emphasize mm -hmm. up front, and I appreciate the time and the opportunity to do that. Okay. Uh, thank you. So in full context and, and recognition of what Herb said, what each of they, these guys have said, that you can't cherry pick out your favorite parts, uh, one of our design points for this panel, so it's not just um, a greatest hits, is think of this as the movie trailer that makes you want to go watch the movie and read these things. Um, I think uh, a lot of the folks that reached out to us when this, this report came out assumed a few things, so I want to blunt them right up front in case you were about to ask them later. Uh, number one, uh, they, they, they ask, is this motherhood and apple pie? Are they just going to say to do the same old things and rinse and repeat and apply the NIST National Cybersecurity Framework? I think you'll find some incredibly fresh ideas in here, some incredibly controversial and brave ideas in here. I'm going to highlight a few. Um, but also, uh, the second question that is usually immediately followed is, do we think the next administration will even read the report? And I think that question um, may obfuscate people actually taking a look at this. There's grist for the mill across the entirety of the ideological spectrum. Many of these topics are nonpartisan. The composition of the uh, task force was bipartisan and nonpartisan. Uh, I think different administrations are going to latch on to different parts, um, but I don't think we should blindly assume that they'll throw this away. In fact, I think there's things in here that directly tie to things you heard on the, the campaign trail. I think it's too soon to tell if this should be dismissed. And furthermore, there's lots of things in here that are relevant to the private sector. These are signals to private sector things they're going to have to do. These are signals to Congress. These are signals to non-political appointees in the executive branch. Uh, this is a very important and instructive report uh, worth reading regardless of what the next uh, White House does with it. Um, I had to, uh, just as we pivot into some of the questions, I had the privilege of testifying to the commission in Minnesota. Uh, and one of the things that we collectively at the Atlantic Council were really impressed with is most of the time, 98% of the time we talk about cybersecurity, we're talking about confidentiality of data or privacy. And throughout this report, it was very clear as a design point that this is also about public safety and cyber physical impact. Uh, and that really adds a lot more gravity and serious tone, and perhaps why they were so brave. Uh, number two, um, there's some parts in here uh, that I think really do merit you taking a look at just to see how fresh and controversial they are. May, they may inspire you to read the other report. And then I'd like to dive into some of them for some of the general discussion that we open up here as we pivot into questions. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, we called out is that uh, we can't just look at this as normal cybersecurity industry. One of the testimonies from Greg Rattray that I continue to misattribute, I'm going to be more careful this time, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase testified in the New York City uh, endeavor that, with, that their full-time security staff is over 2,000 people and that they spend $600 million on cybersecurity. And they have a fantastic program. Uh, in spite of those investments, we know the financial services sector 
uh, has encountered compromises. And when you take that data point that 2,000 people uh, with $600 million budget can still fail with the current defensibility of IT, and you contrast that with what we know from the, the healthcare systems, we know that 70% of our healthcare delivery organizations have statistically zero security staff. So if the really well-resourced financial services sector is having a hard time, how can we be confident and maintain the trust of the public to secure where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood? And in point of fact, this spring, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital had been compromised by ransomware, had to shut down patient care and divert ambulances to other facilities. Just the last month, the, national, uh, the NHS in the UK shut down three hospitals for allegedly similar reasons. And if we can't have reliable, confident delivery of patient care, uh, this is where things are getting very, very serious. And I think the report commands our attention and our review. Uh, and even if you don't want to read it sequentially, there's an excellent appendix in there, and their structure was quite good. Uh, the Cliff Notes version of that structure is uh, of the six sections in plain speak. Um, how do we do better with current IT to, to rise to the challenge in the near term? But the, the other five are very future focused. Um, one is to innovate and, ex, uh, and accelerate the future digital economy. The next was to better equip consumers and purchasers uh, to enable free market choice and make the right safest decisions for themselves. The third was to a very serious problem of investing in the strategic workforce shortages across the various needs that we have. Uh, the fifth was uh, the necessary future investments to, to make in government to rise to the future digital economy. And the last one, in full recognition this is a global market, was factoring in the global factors and the global participation in whatever recommendations we make. So I, I appreciate the comment that all of the recommendations are important, uh, but if you're looking to, to hone in on what's specific to your, um, your sphere of control or influence, uh, those are some, some nice ones. Uh, I think the important thing that uh, I tried to communicate, I know that uh, Sarah Zatko and others, is that we can, the market cannot tell good products from bad products. So I was really impressed to see such a focus on empowering uh, more information and transparency to allow us to make the best choices with the available supply. Uh, and we are also starting to see Mirai um, that even if individual people make the right decisions for themselves, that those low cost, uh, low hygiene devices can have a pretty profound impact on things, whether it's the Brian Krebs website, whether it's Dine and Twitter and Spotify, or next, it could be hospitals. Um, the particular problem that allowed for that botnet uh, was hard-coded unchangeable passwords. And not only is that present in most medical devices, it's the norm. So the next MRI botnet could be composed of MRIs and life-saving devices from a clinical environment. Or the next target of attack could be our hospitals or our public infrastructure. So this is uh, quite serious. And to that end, um, I'd like to, to, in any particular order that you like, um, the ones that I thought were particularly relevant to our research agenda on public safety, human life, and the Internet of Things uh, were the idea for food labels for IoT or nutrition label to, to allow people to tell good products from bad products. I know there's quite a few inspirations like CITL, our Cyber Independent Testing Labs. There's Underwriters Laboratories making attempts here. There are a few frameworks. Um, number two, I loved that there was a recognition that cyber awareness can't be a once a month thing with a stop, click, connect, and with all respect to the, the current ones, we need fresher, more effective, more pervasive raising of cyber IQ and literacy for the population participating to, to pull them into part of the solution. And then the real doozy, which we actually covered two weeks, here at, two weeks ago here at the Cyber Risk Wednesday, is 
at some point and by some criteria, it's time to introduce some form of software liability. So the one that really caught my attention was 2.1.3, uh, essentially stating the Department of Justice should lead an interagency study with the Departments of Commerce and Homeland Security and work with the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and interested private sector parties to assess the current state of the law with regard to liability for harm caused by faulty IoT devices and provide recommendations within 180 days. That is not a timid recommendation. That's a third rail topic, and yet necessary to start discussing. Uh, we're going to see some abrupt introduction of case law, and we should, if you love the idea of liability, now's the time to shape and sculpt how it might come out. And if you hate the idea of liability, now's the time to shape and sculpt. And we've announced that we're doing a project with an economist, a lawyer, an insurer, uh, innovators and cybersecurity folks to really take a multidisciplinary look at supporting the intent of that particular item. So I found those to be the furthest from motherhood and apple pie. Um, could you add a little more color that might entice the group to go read any one of those sections? And we'll get to your point about uh, why this shouldn't be necessary. <laughs> uh, but at, at the moment, uh, it would certainly help. So I, I want to actually, um, if I could backtrack a little bit to the points that you were making out at the beginning, um, which is about the applicability of this report, because I think um, this is coming at a, at a critical time. Um, first of all, for, from the very logistical side, um, we are hearing that the uh, new administration is interested in talking to us, and so we'll, we're looking to set up a briefing shortly um, for the commission to discuss with the new administration. I think where we can jump off the rails here is if we start talking about this as, well, you know, this is Obama's or is Trump going to take this on? Similar to the coverage that we've seen with the recent events with the CIA and Russia, this is not a partisan issue. And what is disappointing to me about all of the media coverage on the stories the last few days is that it is missing a really big part of it, which is not that the Russians did it. There's a story there or however, I mean, going into the intelligence agencies and going deep and all of that, that's clearly an issue. But the issue that nobody's talking about was that we were susceptible and we are susceptible. And that we continue to understand and acknowledge that cybersecurity, General Clapper in his recent briefings to Congress, his annual briefings to Congress, continues to say cybersecurity is our greatest threat. It should be our highest priority. It should be on par with homeland security and counterterrorism. Yet we continue to back away from the resources and the investment and the commitment to this issue. So this is not a partisan issue. We're not looking to say, well, you know, are we getting a, uh, a, a sign that says this is going to happen to the next administration? The new administration knows this is a big issue. It is our responsibility in this field to continue to carry this message and to ensure that what is happening is going to continue to happen. And it's not just going to happen in silos. We are now seeing it affect our infrastructure. We're seeing it compromise our democracy, potentially. It is the breadth of this is so significant. What you heard the conversations about a year ago and even you know four years ago, there was the phrase, which you know again, it's like IoT that nobody really, digital Pearl Harbor. Well, you know, everyone said there wasn't going to be a digital Pearl Harbor. We continue to see these events that are affecting our infrastructure, our society, and now our democracy, potentially. Our, as we look at these issues, no greater threat is posed to our nation right now than cybersecurity. So this is not a partisan issue, but I ask all of those that are reporting on this issue and looking at Russia that you take a look at this other part of the story, which is that cybersecurity is not being addressed and it is not being called out. That should be the headline. The headline should be that we were susceptible. And not only that we were, but 
what has been done to ensure that we're less susceptible? And I think that goes to my, the other point that you made, which is we're not going to stop every threat. I mean, we know that. Uh, Steve articulated it tremendously well. And it, it's this idea that you're not going to be able to block everything. But the key here is to create the resilient infrastructure. The key here is to create resiliency so that when something does happen, the right players are involved. And that is government, industry. And we, when we look at small and medium-sized businesses, depending upon the, the infrastructure, that the industry and the people that are working together can contain something, can manage it, to ensure that we can get operations resuming as quickly as possible. And so I think the resilience part of cybersecurity is really important because from an IT side, you often hear, and CEOs are saying this, and less so now, but it's, tell me what I need to do to make sure nothing happens. And that's not the question. The question is, what am I going to do to strengthen my infrastructure to ensure that I am prepared so that when something does happen, because it will, I have all of the uh, efforts in place to do something right. And there are all the analogies to Homeland Security, to counterterrorism from a physical side. If we look at New York City after 9-11, you know, regardless of where you are with Rudy Giuliani today, what happened and what he did for that city in order to prepare it for something was really important because it was operating in a way that could respond. And so that is just important for cyber infrastructure across the board. Um, I'll take a little bit less time just to answer the question about the, I'll, I'll answer number two, <laughs> if I can, from a, and I'll certainly leave the liability to Steve. But the consumer and education awareness campaign, we had some entertaining conversations as well as some very serious ones, which is cybersecurity is not a flavor of the day, and the fact that we had a month pulled aside for it um, for something that has this type of threat is, is not something we should be proud of. I mean, this is an ongoing campaign. And Herb actually made a point early on in our discussions that I know he said I could give him, uh, acknowledge him for, because typically it's, it's, we, we'll keep it anonymous. But we were really struggling with trying to understand what is that cybersecurity awareness campaign that can be effective. Um, and no joke, we talked about Schoolhouse Rock and transferring that into different generations because it had that multilateral uh, message. But what Herb said is, the challenge here is that we're not telling people to not do something or to do something. It's not don't do drugs. It's not don't litter. It is, are you t telling them to change their password? Are you telling them not to fish? Are you telling them to look at their software? It's, it is a tremendously diverse set of messages that we're trying to convey to consumers. And that goes to Steve's point, which is, how can you expect everybody to take that on? So uh, the key to this campaign, and, and Heather is uh, tremendously articulate about this, and it's too bad that she's not here, um, because what she spent a lot of time researching was saying, in government, what we often don't do too well is understanding when we're actually not the experts. So it shouldn't be an agency within government developing some huge campaign that has such significance across the board. We should be pulling in the experts. And government has worked well with the Ad Council and others, but really looking at this as almost a private sector initiative. I mean, if you are GM or if you're a big company, uh, a private company that's looking to develop a campaign, you're going to bring out the best of the best. And that is something that government needs to do for this with industry to understand what are the messages that we're trying to convey to citizens. And, and when we talk about consumers, as Steve, as Steve said, we're talking about the individual, the small business, the medium business, all the way through the top. And so it's understanding what is that message. And, and the commission, you know, there were different times we spent a, a lot of time, and all of the commissioners were thoughtful about what is this. And I think there was a dream at one point that in the course of eight months we could actually come up with the campaign. Because it was, you know, what could you do to, uh, to, to execute this? But 
between Herb and Heather on this, it was that understanding this is, there are a lot of messages in this campaign and we really need to be bringing in the top experts to do that and this has to get infiltrated into culture. You can't change something by just adding it on and all of the analogies to bicycle helmets, to seat belts, um, somebody made a recent analogy to me which I thought was really impressive, interesting was recycling. You know, we're learning about recycling, it's part of our culture, a lot of that's coming from our children who are coming home from school talking about it because they're learning about it and same, it, it, there are all of these elements to cultural change. And so the campaign is something that I think has uh, a lot of importance and significance, but we've just got to bring the right resources together and execute on it very quickly. Uh, let me try to pull together then the liability issue and the consumer protection issue. Um, I'll start off by saying that I am not a proponent of liability in this space. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not without a place in, in this um, entire scheme of, of what we're going to do about cybersecurity. So let me um, pull on that thread. Why don't I like liability? <clears throat> I'm a lawyer. I mean, I, right? um, I don't like liability for two reasons. Um, one, uh, it could stifle innovation, right? The, we, we are um, a nation of innovators, uh, and we've seen enormous contributions um, with technology. And there's just no doubt that when you start restricting things and when you start um, increasing the liabilities, um, that will have an impact on what goes to market. Now, you might say good, and so there's the rub, right? So hmm. the continuum is where you'd say good, it shouldn't go to market then. Consumers shouldn't be given even the option of purchasing it, even if it's transparent. That might be a place for liability. But for me, it takes a long road to get to that, right? right that even with transparency, there's such a larger import, right? There's something so important that it might impact more than just that one consumer that you're going to even deprive them of the right to make that bad choice because it will impact others in a way that the product manufacturer actually requires liability, right? Or, or, and that you, you, you are almost accepting that some things maybe shouldn't go to market. Now, that's not unusual. We, are not, we don't let every product into market. And it doesn't matter if it's drugs that have to be approved first. Um, but we typically do design towards some security standard. If I were to say to you I could create you know, a, a you know, perfect cell phone coverage, you'd only need one tower, everyone would have uh, the greatest coverage, but it would give everyone brain cancer. That's the, the rate that I'd be pushing out the signal. You'd say you're a lunatic. That innovation is not something we're ever going to deploy. You have to innovate with some health and safety in mind. And so I think that that still is possible, that if we have the right level of what security is needed, where the innovation needs to innovate around, right? I, I can't say that I could put out a car that goes 300 miles an hour and think it's going to be street legal to, to do 300 miles an hour, right? I mean, we innovate around certain parameters. So that's the tension here, um, to allow innovation, to allow consumer choice, and yet still make sure that things are going to market that have certain basic protections that as a society we're going to demand. The other reason that I tend not to favor liability in this area is most of the discussion that we have tends to be around malicious actors who are criminals who are actually causing the harm, right? So, so it instinctively doesn't make sense to me to make the victim liable. And the victim in this case is not just the consumer, but it's the product manufacturers having their product manipulated and intruded upon. Um, you know, if you, if you purchase a house and, you know, the architect writes it to spec, 
and the construction team puts it up exactly right and someone breaks into your house, you don't consider the architect and the contractor to be liable. It was a criminal act. Right? So people are actually intentionally trying to subvert security and they're being successful, but I have instinctively a problem with pushing liability on product manufacturers based on criminal intentional activity when security is not itself the product, for example, right? Where that's not, you're not saying that this is designed for that purpose. It's not a safe. We're, we're trying to put things to market. Um, so um, the, the discussion in the report is very nuanced. And despite the fact that there are um, recommendations that the liability scheme be reviewed, it doesn't make the final leap that we're going to need to get there. Um, and so my hope, and, and getting to your point, which is I hope industry is listening because whether or not um, the government takes this report and puts it on the shelf or, or goes after it, um, industry has a lot of incentive to get this right because right, we, want, we want to make sure that we are allowed to remain innovative, that our markets flourish, and that market forces start to work mm -hmm. here. Uh, and so I review, when I look at the report, I look at those portions of the report that will prevent us from getting to the regulation and liability parts, recognizing, as Herb says, that implicitly, if we don't get there, mm -hmm. something's got to give. And I hope that we don't get to that point because I know what that looks like. What that looks like is a major event, right, where people are injured, where there might be death, and then we have the classic problem where the pendulum shifts too far to the other end, mm -hmm. where we have overregulation and immediacy towards um, legal restrictions, and no one benefits from that. No one. Mm -hmm. um, so we really should, uh, uh, there, there is always this question, and it's been discussed at the Atlantic Council before, um, about uh, when the next wake-up call is and how often we're going to just hit the snooze button, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we, every time you'll see this was a real wake-up call, this was a real wake-up call, this is a real wake-up call. Well, like, you know, after a while, you know, get rid of the snooze control feature on your clock, right? Because you're not waking up and you're going to be late for work. Hmm. Uh, you can't just keep hitting that thing. <laughs> um, and so we have to stop hitting that thing. We've got to get serious because the, the uh, impact not only is bad for uh, our country and internationally, um, but it doesn't resolve well as a legal framework either. Yeah, and without relitigating, if this is a particularly interesting topic, I highly encourage you to watch the video from two weeks ago for our software liability initial discussion. Um, the, the thumbnail for it is, and what I really appreciated, at least about the Minnesota session in the Q&A, was that we, we know how to fix certain things. Like, we actually know how to completely eliminate SQL injection. We know how. We've known how for a long time. We've lacked the incentives to do so. So software developers and developers of IoT are doing exactly what we've incentivized them to do. And as we recognize that those, those technologies are not defensible and that we're over-dependent on undependable things, some hack of our incentives must occur. And in the discussion we're having about software liability, we're looking at all possible remediations. It could be ex-ante, very prescriptive and brittle you know, hurdles that might stifle innovation in a different way or be stale by the time they're done. It could be ex-post, say, do whatever you want, make whatever risk decisions you want, but you're ultimately responsible. It could be some form of limited liability where there's a, a due care or a negligence standard, like you can't ship things with known vulnerabilities in them that have been fixed for 10 years. That's you're, you know, that's not reasonable. So we want to look at uh, comparative alternatives and the, Im the impact across those dimensions. So if this is a topic that's interesting, 
We may get to some of the questions that I'd like to open up uh, in the next few minutes. So think of your questions now. But this is a really complex thing. And regardless of which incentives we pick, we must modify behavior some way. Yeah. So let's talk about modifying behavior, because I, I did want to talk about the consumer choice aspect and mm -hmm. consumer education. And part of the consumer education is not about cybersecurity. It's about technology choices. Mm -hmm. So we've basically um, educated people to you know, allow first to market and first to adoption. And people really haven't had to think about the choices they're making in purchasing and using technologies. And that's really, at essence, part of this cycle, that it really isn't just change your passwords. Um, it's should you be using a device, right? Should you purchase an IoT device that's, that is not a single purpose device, that actually is going to hook into everything else, that has this low level of security, that you can't change the password, that's not going to ever be updated or upgraded, and it has the potential to do A, B, and C. And that's why I favor a lot of the transparency. That's right. Because from, from, from my perspective, part of the education of consumers that can drive the market to make more secure products is, is you know, th this might, um, uh, you know, some people might, might you know, shudder at the thought is that maybe you can't buy every single thing and connect every single thing to every single thing, <laughs> right? And, and, maybe, and maybe that really is, at the end of the day, part of our education, that some things really need to be isolated. That you know, maybe um, my pacemaker doesn't need to have remote diagnostic access capabilities and certainly shouldn't be connected to the toaster because the toaster is mean, <laughs> right? I mean, I get that burning feeling from the poster. So, um, but you get the point. I mean, it, it sounds frivolous, but, but I, I think part of consumer education is, is educating our consumers about their purchasing choices as well. And just to, to pull on that a little bit too, because I think it is educating the consumers and then how does that reconcile with the responsibilities of the manufacturers and the developers? Because it has been, when we talked about this in Minnesota, first to market is always overriding secure to market. Mm -hmm. And there is no, you can't expect consumers right now because of the education and the culture to make the choice of inconvenience over convenience. I mean, we had uh, Dropbox come and talk to us in uh, California and the CIO said, we offered multi-factor authentication to all of our customers for security, and less than 1% opted for it. Right. So after Dropbox had been hacked, after everybody knew that they were vulnerable, they offered this as a, vol you know, as a voluntary uh, offering, and nobody took it because it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to go through two, two elements. So I, I want to just pull on, a, then taking that to another stage, when we talk about education, we're talking about educating the consumer today and what that means, and the nutrition label and all of that. But one of the other recommendations that we call for in this, which isn't expanded upon too significantly, but is really important, is this uh, early childhood education mm -hmm. on, con on computer devices and connected devices. Because if we are truly talking about a cultural shift in understanding, and as Steve was saying, having consumers make that judgment and understand security as a differentiator, that's the type of thing that has to happen organically. That's not something you tell people to do, and they're going to be like, oh, OK, I'll start doing that. I'll, I'll take the less convenient choice. Because it is now about where the culture is developed. So if our children are getting iPads in first grade, if we're seeing kids at young ages connecting to these devices, there should be a mandatory side-by-side -side education on what that means. And that's the type of thing that you could imagine kids saying, 
oh, you got to change the default password. You know, I mean, understanding, because that's something that they're internalizing from their own experiences. So when we talk, we, as, as Steve was saying, and I think one of the things I, I hope, but I think that the uh, commission did tremendously effectively, and this report does as well, is truly reconcile these short-term actions that need to happen now with how, do you, how are you simultaneously changing this culture? And so when we talk about consumer education and choices, one of those elements is really the education, which also has so many uh, secondary benefits, including uh, workforce development, which we go into a little bit more detail. Uh, as we re reach for Mike's uh, a tiny personal anecdote, my, uh, granted there's a little bit of availability bias here, but my daughters get to hear me talk about hackable vehicles often. So one of my, my eldest daughter went to summer uh, STEM camp for females, and they had to do a project on connected vehicles. And they wove into their oral presentation that while the benefits of connected vehicles are important, we must also understand that it opens us to different accidents and adversaries. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dad's proudest moment. Yeah, it, was, it was a proud moment. And just like yeah. we used to play uh, you know, punch buggy for the Volkswagen bugs, <laughs> they say hackable Jeep, hackable Jeep on the highway. <laughs> so. Uh, um, but it does remind me of the line that in my own testimony I said, through our over-dependence on undependable technologies, we have created the conditions such that any single actor, an outlier, can have a profound impact on public safety and national security. And it just so happened that while we were in Minnesota, it was about the one-year anniversary of the drone strike of Junaid Hussein, uh, also known as Trick, a former anonymous hacker from the UK who moved to Raqqa, Syria, helped find, found the, the cyber caliphate and did social media recruiting, but also was training people to use very basic hacking tools like Metasploit and Shodan to find critical infrastructure that's exposed on the internet, hard-coded passwords, things like the water facility that was hacked by the Iranians, things like Hollywood Presbyterian. So with this over-dependence, it doesn't matter what most would do. It matters what any one would do. And out of seven billion humans, um, we are tremendously exposed. So uh, who's first for a question? We're going to try to do short questions and short answers to get to as many as we can. Uh, who is first? I think I saw you first, but that's just my eyeline. So. Um, please, uh, if you can, I'd say who you are. Uh, David Turetsky from Macon Gump. Um, there's an action item 5.5.2 that's listed as short term. Congress should consolidate cybersecurity and infrastructure protection functions under the oversight of a single federal agency and ensure that the agency has the appropriate capabilities and responsibilities to execute its mission. Um, could you just uh, explain a little bit more about that? That sounds like a major uh, um, restructuring, and yet it's called short term. What's the vision there? So two things, the, the term, the time term in the report for recommendations, and we lay this out up front, is actually when it should start. So it doesn't mean that it's going to happen in a short term. It just means that this is something that needs to happen immediately. And we, we say that initially we thought we would have a series of short term, medium term, and long term. But what we understood is once the commission came up with these series of actions, none of these should be delayed to the long term. Uh, secondly, there's, there is a piece of legislation on the Hill right now uh, that actually looks at uh, consolidating and well, stripping down the National Programs and Protection Directorate at DHS. Yeah, so what, that, what that, that legislation is, is stripping down that to be cybersecurity and infrastructure. And so this is using that uh, as a foundation. Clearly, I mean, this is almost identical. But the idea here was not to necessarily call out 
that legislation specifically so that, and I, again, this is one of those areas where I think that the commission was tremendously effective in knowing when to be strategic and when to be prescriptive. And this is one of those cases where it chose to be strategic in the sense of this makes a lot of sense because we need to be focusing our cyber capabilities within a new agency. And this civilian agency needs to be looking at these particular functions. Um, and I think the legislation is pretty specific in how it goes about it, but being able to do that effectively. Yeah, the only thing I would add is, uh, again, this recognition that every department and agency is not going to be able to be um, expert for any number of reasons, um, including workforce development and the like, yet the trust and level of confidentiality of the information that departments and agencies hold is very high. So there is a view moving towards a private sector model of managed services. Um, both regular uh, delivery of services and security of, of networks. But the government really needs to look in that way as well, and that Congress would do well working with the executive branch to figure out at an agency level um, how to create that joint combined expertise in a single agency. We don't prejudge the outcome of which agency that would be, um, especially where it relates to shared services. So to the departments and agencies that have very specific, unique requirements, um, they would, of course, still have to control their own services. Um, and we could think of a number of those where they wouldn't be part of a shared service. Um, but it's like a line of business. Um, it, it, the government, for example, there are a couple of agencies that do payroll on behalf of others. Um, and that by consolidating in that way, we could get more expertise, um, more capability, um, and instead of worrying about every single department and agency's FISMA score, we really can offload some of that to some extent, uh, hopefully a larger extent, as time goes by in a particular single agency. And that's, that's how we would hope it would look, as opposed to Congress should make sure that every single department and agency has the resources and the chief information security officers and the chief risk officers and a refresh budget and, a, and, a, and change technology that, that is refreshed every two years, right? That's the other way of looking at it. And so to some extent, when you're, review, when you're reviewing that proposal, it's this notion that we really have to start consolidating and um, both as a matter of efficiency and effectiveness. I have heard, heard some subsequent discussion on this that maybe a design point to consolidate versus forcing a single if it's not right. Um, I'm going to try to do my best on that order. I definitely saw you in the back, uh, and I think I know the order after that. Um, uh, also, for my team, I know we like to take questions from Twitter, so if, if somebody can flag that for me. Okay. Thank you. My name is Andrea Glorioso. I work at the delegation of the European Union to the U.S. here in Washington, D.C., working on cybersecurity and other issues. I did read the report. Uh, to be fair, I'm paid to do that, but it was a very good report. Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful or polemic, but a lot of the ideas in that report uh, are not new. It's something that we have been discussing for 10 years in Europe and in the US and other parts of the world. So the question is, what makes you think that now the effects will be different, that now the results will be different? And this is, if this is a criticism, which is not, is this as much a criticism to Europe as it is to the US, because we've been having exactly the same discussions for 10 years. So what's changed nowadays? So, so I agree with you, and I, I thank you for the question. So one thing in my view is I didn't want to write the same report that had been out you know, since you know, the, the, the mid-90s. Um, on the other hand, if there are good ideas and they're still relevant today, it would have been equally, um, I think, uh, uh, not, not fulfilling our charge to ignore them and only put in new ideas because for, for the sake of newness. So uh, those ideas that have been around um, that we think are still vital um, remain in the report for that reason. 
Uh, now, what, what difference does this report make than any other? Uh, and I think that um, as a commissioner, and um, I probably speak on behalf of every other commissioner, we are not confident that this report will have an impact that's different than its predecessors, right? And we're, but we're not going to allow that to distract us both from the mission and the charge that we had to write it and from continuing to press the point, right? It, right? Even though others before us have screamed as loud as they could, um, just because that didn't come to the fruition that they had hoped is not going to prevent us from continuing to scream at the top of our lungs. So we are part of a long lineage of thinkers. Um, we've relied on them. Uh, we hope that we've done them justice in this report um, by bringing up those points that are developed both domestically and, as you say, internationally. And um, uh, we suspect that there will be others after us, um, but hopefully not writing the same thing, just as those before us had hoped that we wouldn't have to be repetitive. And that was a question that was actually asked early on. You know, how is this going to be different? I mean, there was a lot of um, pessimism around this. And I, I would say that there are two things that are critical. I think the way this report is structured, and again, this was really a, this was a product of the commissioners, is more accessible, arguably, as far as how you look at it and organize it to be able to pull and to understand where there are key themes and all of that. And I do think that plays a role. That sounds logistical and administrative, but that's one of the things that is actually very important to be able to look at it and understand where the actions are. And then the other part of this, uh, which is important, is eight years ago, when President Obama came into office, he had 60 days to take a look at cybersecurity and do a review. What he did for this next administration was say, I'm going to bring together 12 of the brightest minds on this. They're going to come and they're going to think about this for eight months. And they're going to pull to Steve's point from the best practices, from what's worked, from what hasn't worked, as a means of truly looking forward. And we actually had a team of people um, that worked on an analysis of previous reports mm -hmm. to say, what had worked well, where, where things went awry. And this report actually steers pretty clear of those roadblocks that they pulled, which was very government focused, not really acknowledge, seeing industry as an outsider, not being able to truly read what the recommendations were. And I would say, most importantly, what's actionable. And that is what, I mean, we use the words action items. I mean, these are prescriptive in some cases to be very actionable. And so this timing of the transition to a new administration hopefully, is one of the key distinguishing factors of this report for how some of these things can be acted upon. So the, as the mic moves up to the middle here, uh, the gentleman with two fingers, um, right, up here. Yeah. Um, one of the things, so three years ago, uh, Bo and myself and a bunch of crazy white hat hackers decided to try to tackle public safety issues. And many of our friends told us, it's not going to work. We've been trying this for years. We've been trying this for years. And over the last three years, we've had a profound impact on uh, it did, this year alone, uh, we worked with eight different government agencies on their first policies on cyber safety or cyber physical impact uh, in IoT. And it's not that we're special. Sometimes you were right, but you were early. I think timing really matters. I also think the as we get more stories like Hollywood Presbyterian, like hackable vehicles, the public support and consciousness is different. So the optimist in me says, maybe we've known the right things to do all along, but maybe we now have the moment when people can hear and act upon it. Sir. Scott Towsley, the R&D part of DHS. Steve and I go back quite a ways. One of the reasons the military budget is the size it is over the length of time you think about is it spends a lot of time and energy trying to connect the stuff it develops and buys with the people that it has that uses it. And I'm not hearing anything that tells me we really have 
figured out how to think about that in a civilian, commercial, non-military sense, connecting what and the tech pieces and all the rest of it with all of the different social usability, all that sort of stuff. Was there discussion of that intersection in the commission? Is there sure. stuff in there in the report? So there are two parts to that. Um, we actually spend a decent amount of time talking about the procurement process and saying in the recommendation, ensuring that the right technologists and the right people are engaged in what is being procured, not just for ensuring that there's innovation coming into government, but that it's usable. And then as Herb mentioned earlier, and this was a big part, it, it's actually threaded through a couple of the imperatives, is understand doing research and development on usability and human behavior. When the commission first started, people said, you know, what is the big aha moment? What's the big thing you're hearing? And a lot of the commissioners were extremely thoughtful, I mean, all of them, on the understanding of human behavior and incentives. And that tech, this is, cybersecurity is not a technology problem. It, at its core, it's the people and understanding how the people are going to use these, what they're incentivized to do. I mean, the, the conversation that Steve had around uh, consumers and educating, this is about usability. And so we have recommendations in here that focus on research and development into the usability of products, making the secure thing easy to do, making the insecure thing very difficult to do. Mm. And that is a critical uh, key component to really being successful in this space. Okay. Uh, the woman on the aisle, three from the back, and then the, the gentleman behind her after. Thank you. I'm Renee Marlin Bennett, um, professor from Johns Hopkins University. So as you're talking about the nutrition label, which sounds really nice, but people still buy potato chips. So I'm concerned about a focus on telling everybody all the time about every device that they pick up at the store. And if we leave this to the incentivizing of consumers, um, what happens to the piece about simply stopping that first to market without being safe to market? How much was that discussed in the report? Well, one of my favorite lines from um, Sarah Zatko's testimony um, was that the beauty of a nutrition label is it does not prevent someone from selling terribly bad junk food. It just makes it very, very clear that you're choosing to eat junk food. So. Um, or if you're allergic to peanuts, then you know that there's peanuts in the ingredient list and things like that. But then you could be causing vulnerabilities for others. Yeah, so I think uh, there's a. I think what's in here isn't that they've designed the label. I think that pretty. I think you cast a pretty wide net for a multi-stakeholder um, summit to look yeah, so, at so, designing yeah. something useful. Yeah, right. and I agree yeah. with the premise, right? Yeah. So, so let's um, a couple of things. One, when we talk about um, consumer labels, um, to Kirsten's point, the consumer doesn't necessarily, uh, certainly isn't limited to um, a normal individual consumer, right? Consumers include the government as a consumer, critical infrastructure as Lots a consumer, right? Very sophisticated readers of, of what some of the security transparency would end up including. So it's, it's um, I think to that extent, if you shift uh, the, the actual um, ability of transparency and security um, to a sophisticated user uh, group, it could have an impact in procurement choices at a larger level. Uh, because I agree with you, it's not that I, as an individual consumer, going into you know a, a retail store, I'm going to read this and and make much sense of it. Um, the second thing, though, is that the report does talk um, very specifically in IoT about the potential that liability might be needed, something we addressed earlier, and security by design and default principles as being required. 
Um, and so I think if you pull that all together, we get to a better point than everyone's still going to end up buying it. It's just that they're just going to do it and, and they'll have known about it. I, I think that different purchasing choices can be made at higher levels and that if security by design and default ends up being part of the products, you start moving that away from the consumer level. So whatever they buy is going to be um, a little better for them. And one point, I'll just say that the chair, Tom <coughs> Donlin, often says right now is if these recommendations are all executed in the aggregate, that this will be a pretty powerful next step. Obviously, we don't expect that to happen. but. In, to your point, the hope here is that a lot of these things are happening simultaneously because yeah. each of them on their own isn't going to make a difference and there will be this inequity um, and in where the weight gets, that gets pushed. But if you talk about standards for security, if you talk about uh, consumer education and awareness, some of these incentives around market forces and liability, all of those things will ho hopefully have that balance when executed appropriately. And you may not have one size fits all for a label. This morning I was at the HHS Cybersecurity Task Force and the hospitals that are being hit by ransomware, uh, it's a known vulnerability in JBoss in devices they didn't know had that vulnerable version. So there's a notion that where Philips, is Philips Medical is voluntarily publishing a software bill of materials of all the third-party libraries and versions they use in all their goods as they go forward. That kind of a transparency to a hospital buyer uh, allows them, A, to pick the, the better hygiene product while they're procuring, but B, when there's a new attack in the wild, their impact analysis is minutes or, or hours. Am I affected? Where am I affected? Now that's way too much for I'm gonna buy a home router, that, like in the Mirai botnet. So independent of the commission, uh, the US Commerce Department's NTIA just started about four days before the big dyne attacks, uh, started a voluntary best practice for patching for consumer IOTs, the, the notion of you should state on the label, are you patchable, and for how long you commit to being patched. That way, you know, if there's three routers and they're equally priced, you might have a simple label. But as someone who knows every cybersecurity staff at every single car company right now, I still can't tell which car is less hackable as a power user. So there, there may not be a single label, but the intent of empowering free market choice uh, is worth looking at. Now let me uh, yeah. pull on that thread because you brought up um, healthcare, which is a regulated industry. Yeah. So if you look at um, consumer labeling and put that in the perspective of enterprise risk management, it might be that consumer choices, especially in regulated industries, would be asked, why did you make this purchase of a device that is so transparently telling you it had the following security flaws, yet you deployed it in a high risk area, right? Mm -hmm. So it will turn into an enterprise risk management right. decision that one could imagine the consumer, when you're talking at that level of regulated industry, would at least start considering the labels, may not be able to eat the potato chips consistent with their risk management framework when given the proper, the proper information to make those choices. Uh, the gentleman right behind you. We have a, about enough time for maybe two if we're quick. Sure. Uh, thanks. My name is Carl Schoenender. I'm with the Software and Information Industry Association. And thank you very much for this discussion. It's been very rich. Uh, question for uh, Steve Shabinsky. Um, so I was very interested to hear you say, sort of acknowledge that it's sort of unrealistic to posit the idea that everybody is responsible for cybersecurity, um, that there has to be a, a move towards well, to a different different solution. So I guess my question is, do you foresee a technological solution 
and or a solution aided by policy that can get us to a different place in, the, in this area? Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, how do you get to a better place where we, we take the burden of cybersecurity off of the consumer? Um, I, I really do think it's a, a multi-tiered approach, um, right? One is figuring out higher levels that have um, the, the um, greatest impact for the greatest number of users um, by relying on areas that are at a higher level. So we were talking about the telecommunications and the internet ecosystem and doing that through market forces of making, of, of, of having, in my example, um, some of our defense uh, budgeting um, towards that, but incentivizing the market to come forward with solutions that are to the benefit of everybody. The other was making sure we put more effort on threat deterrence. Uh, again, taking the burden off of consumers, and we also talked about having products that are more secure uh, by both design and by default. And if we really took that holistic approach of areas that if you worked on all of them would make it less important for the individual consumer to start making security decisions and updating and upgrading and not clicking, as, as Herb says, not actually using the technology for that purpose for which it was designed, I think we really can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But if we continue to view this, that everybody has to have the workforce, everybody has to be responsible, and that anything at any time can go wrong and impact everyone, we're over, right? So we, we won't see considerably better security in the future. Um, but if we really pull that together as the philosophy, right, what can we do? What ideas can come forward in response to this dialogue where fewer individuals can make more impact, fewer choices can make greater, greater impact on getting security to a higher level for the protection of everyone? If that becomes a national dialogue and then the international dialogue, three years from now, we could actually say security got a lot better for everyone. If I think we still continue to focus on the end user's responsibilities, um, we don't have a chance. Yeah, it's almost like you look at the end user as the last line of defense in the error handling right. as opposed to the first line of defense as a design principle. That's right. Now, in the short term, of course, we still have to rely on the end user. There's no getting around that. So My the report talks about that. But we just don't want that <laughs> to be the long-term approach. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I think this might be our last question. We'll see. Thanks for that. Uh, Paul Toomey, I'm a director at the council, so first of all, thanks very much for participating. I'm also a former CEO of ICANN. Um, I wanted to just push back, Steve, just Please. on some of those things you've been saying. More linguistically, and I know the commission was directed to the US environment, mm -hmm. but I worry about what the signal is of some of the things you're saying internationally. Uh, my experience has been that uh, as governments, as countries get into the internet, as they get concerned about security, they say, who's going to help me? It ends up being signals intelligence in every country is the first people they talk to. And you come with security is the answer. And I want to share an anecdote as to why I think some of your stuff about let's not say everybody's responsible and the conclusion there should be some centralization of organizational responsibility in Washington may get misheard. And just push back Please, a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm the chair of a new nonprofit called Cyber Green that produces 12 billion data points a week on the health of ISPs around the world and tries to say which ones are getting better and worse over time. In discussions we have with governments in quite advanced economies, we're having problems getting the right people to understand this is something you should go to the regulator about because they could potentially get the regulator to talk to the telco ISP and improve because the model inside is security. And so we security people don't think we can do that. We don't think that way, right? So I, I can hear your point about 
perhaps not the consumer, but when you say not everybody should be accountable, there is something about telling many parts of the world that it's not just a security issue, that we need to be pushing this issue further out into realms of social and political influence. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just sort of pushing back on you and say, you know, is, is your internal signaling going to have a misadventure mm -hmm. outside? So I, I take your point, and I think you're right, right? So, so how, we, how we discuss it matters. Um, and there is in the report a lot of discussion about the fact that this has to be international, that we have to have normative behaviors. Um, and certainly the last thing that you want is for people to say, um, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, no one's responsible and someone else is going to take care of this one day and we'll just wait for that to happen. So um, uh, it would be um, un uh, quite unfortunate if, if the words are, are being um, held in that way. Um, but the bigger point that I um, take from your comment is that this, ca this report cannot be viewed as a U.S. report, right? That, that and, 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 and it won't be, but, that the, but the tenor of the report um, has to be, again, a dialogue with how does this, how, how do the notions in this report fit in geopolitically, socially, economically? The laws are, are widely disparate um, in, in terms of internet governance and what countries view as their national security um, uh, protections that are necessary on the internet. Um, so there, there's a whole nother rich conversation that, that is required. And I will um, give further thought to how we signal that as a commission um, in this report uh, with respect to our action items and recommendations. I thank you. There were current and previous CEOs on this commission who do a lot of work in the global space. And one of the things that, was, that they asserted a lot was how do you create, harmonize all of the requirements across the board and ensure that this is actually an, a, a global approach. And to your question about the concentrated focus in, in uh, DC, that's much more about helping government be more efficient and effective in how it runs cyber. Because if we've got all of these responsibilities spread throughout different agencies and where there's no accountability, I mean, the impetus for this commission was really the OPM breach and the fact that President Obama didn't truly have a cyber expert to turn to when that happened and say, why did this happen and what are we going to do about it? And there were a lot of people that were called in to do that. So it's about clarifying those roles and responsibility. It's not intended to be kind of like a, a mothership of, of all efforts and, and initiatives in a way that is um, not a collaborative one, but it's truly to create better efficiencies within government and expertise so that agencies have those resources available to them, small agencies, large agencies as well. And perhaps a subtle point, I mean, there's quite a bit in Imperative 6 about ensuring an open, fair, competitive, and secure global digital economy, including one that really caught my attention. I want to look into more of, of a, a cybersecurity ambassador uh, for the international policy things. One of the, things, the reasons that our Stabber Statecraft initiative is focused so much on cyber safety and public safety and IoT is even nation states who are our adversaries on certain topics share a similar medical supply chain, automotive and high-speed high rail, smart cities, so we have a shared stake between R&D and manufacturing of most of the hyper-connected cyber-physical systems. And we're already starting to open up lines of cooperation um, with China, with other nations, about what's the superset or the lowest common denominator for this global supply chain of medical equipment and whatnot. And there's a whole lot less contention and adversarial orientation on this topic. So that gives me a little bit of hope. Um, we're a little bit over time, but if, if we'd like to do like very short uh, last thoughts as panelists, and then we'll, we'll transition into continuing the conversation over wine and cheese. Uh, anyone want to go first? 
just wanted to, to, to thank everyone for continued attention. Um, of course, like any, uh, anyone else that, that puts out a product, uh, the worst thing that could happen is that no one looks at it and the conversation doesn't continue. Um, the best thing that could happen is this give and take of uh, where we got it right, where we got it wrong, where we didn't get it at all. Um, and uh, we are very receptive to that. Uh, I'm sure I speak for uh, the entire commission. Uh, all viewpoints not only welcome, but encouraged. So let's keep the debate going um, and, and let's make a difference. Thank you very much. I just want to thank you, Josh, for uh, bringing everybody together and to the Atlantic Council. And the point, um, just to, to continue that, is that this was never intended to be a pretty book that sits on a shelf. It has to have a life. It has to be agile. It has to be dynamic in order for it to be effective. And um, so the, to Steve's point, the more that this is discussed and taken and pieces can be taken and uh, adapted, uh, that will measure its success. And the, the real priority right now is ensuring that this does become a roadmap, a roadmap for the next administration because um, there was a lot of thought that went into that to both help industry and government. And hopefully some of those lessons will be taken. I look at this report as an opportunity, um, and having working on the HHS one, I can't fathom how you kept it so affirmative, so imperative focused, and so well organized. So uh, it's a really impressive piece of work for something that's not very easy to do. I hope people honor and respect their contributions by taking a look uh, and, and seeing, to look for what's right in it. We're not going to like or agree with everything, but there's really some, some fresh and new ideas in here that I think uh, could finally dent the universe. I'd like to thank our panelists. I'd like to thank you for attending. You. And I hope it's a start of a dialogue. Thank you. Please round of applause.